Welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this brilliant, brave, young church leader in Nazi-era Germany who would lose his life in resistance to the terror of the Third Reich, but not before he left us a wonderful body of literature that helps guide us down the thorny road of ethical dilemmas. Uh, and uh, you can find out more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and what's being done in his memory today by checking out our website, tdbi.org, for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, tdbi.org. And one of our offerings is simple discussion with insightful people uh, who bring us uh, similar examination of the human condition, uh, the uh, challenges we face in our own time when it comes to uh, morality, uh, ethics, uh, human existence. And my interlocutor today is a dear friend, uh, someone who means a lot to me personally, uh, and someone who's doing a lot of good work in the world, Rabbi Jack Moline. He is president of Interfaith Alliance, uh, headquartered here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Rabbi Moline has established himself as a powerful voice fighting for religious freedom for all Americans, regardless of their faith or belief system. He has served as chair of the Interfaith Relations Committee uh, for the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, vice president of the Washington-Baltimore Rabbinical Assembly and board member of the Faith and Politics Institute. He serves on the advisory board of Clergy Beyond Borders and operating, uh, excuse me, Operation Understanding DC. He has served as the president of the Washington Board of Rabbis, uh, and he is a co-chair of the Clergy Advisory Commission for the sponsor of this broadcast. Let me say that again. And he is a co-chair of the Clergy Advisory Council. Uh, oh, let me try one more time. Goofing up my own part of this. And he is the co-chair of the Clergy Advisory Commission for this institute, for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Uh, you will discover he is also a teacher par excellence. So here we are, Rabbi Jack Moline, my friend, and I talking about a very important and timely concept we can all learn from. Jack Moline, you are a good friend, a confidant, a counselor to me in so many ways, for which I am so grateful both to God and to you. But uh, in this conversation, I don't feel right uh, calling you just Jack. You are rabbi. You are in so many ways a rabbi to me. So, uh, Rabbi Moline, 
Welcome <laughs> to the conversation. Thank you, Reverend Shank. And I've been called a lot worse, so just go ahead and call me what you want. <laughs> Not by me. Not by me. I speak well of you, even behind your back. Uh, Rabbi, uh, we're going to talk today about a very important concept called tikkun olam in Hebrew, which I'm going to, I know you'll correct me on my pronunciation, but also uh, I'll leave you to define it. But first, this is like a kitchen table conversation here, and I like to think of our listeners as people by the window open on a warm uh, summer's day, not like the one we're sitting in right now yeah, where we too. live. But uh, for that reason, I like them to get to know you a little bit. Can we find out uh, a little of your history? I know you were not born a rabbi. You started as something else. Uh, no, tell I, us I about you. Started as a baby, actually. But yes, uh, you did. <laughs> uh, I, I was. I was uh, obviously born into a Jewish family. My uh, my parents uh, are. Uh, second-generation Americans, uh, so well-established by the time I came on the scene. Uh, they were raised in nominally Orthodox families, uh, though when they got married, like most Americans of their generations in post-World War II, they were uh, modest in their, in their Jewish observance and in their formal Jewish education. Uh, when I came along and then my brother and sister, uh, they became more involved in synagogue life and encouraged us to do the same. And eventually, um, because of my various involvements, I mean, I went, to, I went to public school and I went to Northwestern University for an undergraduate degree, but I eventually decided I was going to go to seminary and become a rabbi. Uh, my, my younger brother and much younger sister um, each made decisions uh, similar to that. My brother has been in the Jewish professional world for his entire career, working with uh, youth groups and tourism to Israel. And my sister, um, after some time in my father's business, he was in the office supply and office furniture business, uh, then went to mortuary school and became a Jewish funeral director. So the yeah. Moline family can... Uh, Hatch, match, and dispatch, and we're uh, <laughs> we're full service in that regard. Wow, um, you sure are. <laughs> I uh, I I um, served in two congregations. I was in Danbury, Connecticut, in a very small congregation, but a very active congregation for seven years. Two years as a student, then five years full time. And then for another 27 years, I was in Alexandria, Virginia at a, at a synagogue there and um, retired from the pulpit uh, and started the next chapter of my life, which was in nonprofit work. And for the past six years, I've been the uh, president of Interfaith Alliance, which is an organization devoted to protecting faith and freedom. We are focused on the first two rights in the Bill of Rights, the, uh, the freedom of conscience, the, the free exercise clause, and the freedom from the interference of government in religious life, the establishment clause. Um, now, there's all sorts of things in between, if you want to know. 
Uh, well, uh, the one thing I am going to ask you, uh, because I know just a little about it, but Interfaith Alliance has a very interesting story of its own. Can, can you it, tell us about its, its oh, history? Absolutely. I've, I've actually been involved with Interfaith Alliance for, uh, for more than 25 years. I wasn't an original board member, but I was asked to join the board shortly after it formed. It formed uh, in uh, 1995 and was... Um, was a response to the emergence of the Christian coalition and the moral majority. When uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and, and that uh, cohort of folks um, began to see the potential political power of the uh, conservative Christian right, um, a, a group of more liberal, uh, mostly Protestant clergy, um, who had been active in the civil rights movement and had been involved in anti-war um, activities uh, during Vietnam, uh, formed a group that was meant to be a countering voice to the religious right. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call them the religious left. They sought to be more moderate and, and more devoted to the separation of church and state uh, in governance, uh, obviously not in the public sphere. So uh, that was where Interfaith Alliance began, and it had, it had its ups and downs over the years, as, as did these other organizations, but has found itself, perhaps ironically, um, doing the same work now that we did when we were formed, um, even though the, the players are a little different and a little less overtly religious than the leadership of, of the Christian Coalition, the Moral Majority, were. Um, they are uh, pushing the same agenda, which is, uh, you know, it gives us an opportunity to recycle some of the stuff we've been saying for a long time. But it's a little distressing that there's been some backsliding in that regard. Mm, yeah, uh, ever vigilant, I guess, is is uh, what all of us have to be conscious of. That's these what days, democracy but... is. It is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess, and the human story. Uh, but there have been some interesting names associated with Interfaith Alliance along its, uh, its history. Uh, so, I'm thinking of one of your founding yeah. members in particular. So shortly after he retired from CBS News, Walter Cronkite uh, took a liking to us. He really believed in our message and he really saw a, a threat to American democracy and, and actually a threat to American uh, civic conversation and civil conversation from the religious right. And so he adopted us and, and embraced us and was both the, uh, the voice and the faith of Interfaith Alliance during the last years of his life um, uh, to great effect. Um, we, uh, in his honor, uh, then began... Um, what we call the Walter Cronkite Faith and Freedom Awards, and regularly we award we award the Cronkite Award to people who have uh, have distinguished themselves on matters of uh, freedom and faith in the public media. Um, most recently, um, uh, Peter Mayer, who was the CBS News radio uh, correspondent at the White House for many years was uh, our um, was our recipient from from the news division. We've we've honored some other people as well. 
Larry King, who just who just died, was one of our recipients. Tom Brokaw, mm-hmm. Peter Jennings, uh, Bill Moyer, um, and so we've we've really tried to focus on on the news media and people who have broadcast with integrity. And of course, there's a little bit of a <laughs> a little bit of a fundraising aspect to that as well. Yeah, of course, of course, uh, and that's the reality. Well. Let's uh, fast forward a little bit and actually engage in some tikkun olam okay. uh, by telling people how they can support Interfaith Alliance ah, or find out more about it. So, uh, so interfaithalliance.org is our website, and you can find out anything you want to know about what we're doing and what our positions are at interfaithalliance.org. We have a weekly radio program and podcast. It is both on uh, broadcast and on uh, the web um, at stateofbelief.com. The name of the program is State of Belief, uh, and it's stateofbelief.com. It is hosted by my predecessor in my current position, uh, Reverend Welton Gaddy, um, and uh, he has a very interesting lineup of guests every week at the intersection of uh, politics and true religious freedom. So um, uh, this past week, for example, he did an hour's worth of conversation with Shelley Wright, who is a country star and a uh, person of faith and who came out as a lesbian to uh, great resistance from her fans and her community. Welton really worked with her through that, and, and she has since regained both her fan base and uh, and her, I, I, I hope, her equilibrium as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So she was on. But you'll hear everybody from United States senators to uh, people who have written uh, books that are insights into the topic of religion and government. So that's on uh, each week. And then we had a series that we did. You were actually one of my guests uh, in the early days of the pandemic called Stay Home, Stay Focused which you can find at stayhomestayfocused.org. It's almost 100 conversations with people from all sorts of walks of life uh, in the United States about how they were dealing with the isolation in the early part of the uh, pandemic. And coming up in just a couple of weeks, we're premiering a new series called American Purpose, uh, in which I have conversations. So far, we've recorded a dozen of them with people of prominence about what the purpose of the United States is. What is the American mm. purpose? Uh, how does it compare to what the American purpose was in their perspective? And how do we achieve what we need to be from their perspective? So my first guest is Senator Tammy Baldwin. And uh, and we have, I, I won't take the time now to rattle the rest of them off, but they come from faith, culture, politics, and uh, academia. So it's they're great conversations. I've really enjoyed them. Lots of reasons to check in with Interfaith Alliance. And if you want to know a little more about Jack, and by the way, I'll mention uh, his uh, uh, super super woman wife, uh, (laughs) Anne, a great partner, uh, uh, accomplished journalist. And uh, the two of them are a power couple in so many ways, and you can actually read about both of them in my memoir, Costly Grace. That's correct. An Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love. I have practically a whole chapter devoted to your Seder table, for good reason. That was a great night. 
And I think both of us agree we married up. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say Cheryl's, uh, Cheryl and, and, and are a good match. And uh, so uh, there's so many things we could talk about. Uh, and I was tempted to introduce some side questions, uh, even as you were holding forth there. Uh, Rabbi Moline, but I'm going to go right to the heart of the matter, and that is to talk about the Jewish concept of tikkun olam, because it seems so timely, so relevant, really so urgent in this moment, uh, certainly in in uh, the United States, uh, but globally as well. And uh, I teased a little bit by saying we should engage in tikkun olam. Um, I understand it as an amateur, as being the concept of improving the state of affairs in the world or human experience in the world, but I know there's a lot more to it than that. Can you the floor is yours. Can you tell us the history, the meaning, uh, and how you see this concept being applied in our own time. Sure. So I will tell you, first of all, that that uh, the idea of tikkun olam, which you're correct, means the improvement, perhaps even the repair of the world. Tikkun means repair. Uh, it, it can also mean in, in one of its other forms to prepare. But uh, tikkun means repair, and olam means the world. Now, I, it is both one of the oldest ideas in Judaism and one of the newest ideas of Judaism. So I want to start at the end and then we'll do the history because most people will be familiar with the, the term tikkun olam as being engaged in what, I, I hesitate to use the word because it's so fraught politically, but being engaged with social justice, making the world a better place and not just by delivering a lasagna to your neighbor whose power is out, but but, but could be, it, right? It, absolutely. Mm, but okay. it is it is devoting yourself to the kind of systemic or or even uh, temporal changes that are necessary to make this world reflect more God's intention than people's actions. And uh, and that kind of engagement, depending on who you are and and what your starting point is, can be anything from uh, from direct uh, personal activism and and activities to uh, to the kind of uh, political advocacy that makes for better policy and better uh, a better society. So that's that's how most people understand tikkun olam today. I, I, if any of uh, any of your listeners saw the documentary on Mr. Rogers. Not the not the uh, dramatization that Tom Hanks was in, but there was a documentary on Mr. Rogers. There's an extraordinary moment that I did not remember. Uh, just after 9-11, uh, some of the folks in government asked him if he would go on television and talk in his particularly calming way about how to respond to the upheaval and the uproar that was in the country now almost 20 years ago. And um, he used this phrase. He talked about the Jewish concept of tikkun olam and making the world a better place, and that that's what we needed to focus on. 
I so, remember but, that. I, yeah. I wouldn't have, except that you just mentioned it. But I did see that doc. It, it by was, the way, I'll just mention to the listeners: we'll put a link to it uh, in uh, or, or direction on how you can get to that doc. But say the on producers, thank you. Yes, and it's it's really just a moment in the film, but clearly it made an impression on me. So most people think of it that way. But the fact of the matter is that um, the phrase letakain olam b'malchut shaddai, to repair the world uh, as God's kingdom, appears in one of the oldest pieces of Jewish liturgy that we have in, uh, in our tradition. It dates to sometime in perhaps even Second Temple times. We don't have a lot of non-biblical material that comes from that period of time. But in every worship service that's conducted by Jews three times a day, that phrase, letakenu lamba machut shaddai, to repair the world in God of God's kingdom uh, or for God's kingdom, uh, appears in our prayers as an aspiration that we have. And so the question is, what does it mean? There was certainly no concept of social justice uh, back then, like we have it in this country now. Um, and it really means to be faithful uh, to to God's instruction um, in, in that regard. Um, olam, as, as some of your listeners may know, can really have two meanings. Uh, olam can mean world in the physical sense. The earth that we walk on is the olam. And olam can also be in a temporal sense. It can mean a time. When we talk about olam haba, the world to come, we're not talking about a different physical location that we're in right now. We're talking about that realm we enter when time has come to an end, whether it's for us collectively or personally. So uh, to create a an olam, a world uh, that is God's, uh, a place of God's sovereignty, is is to talk about being in a place where the will of God is dominant and where where um, all of us are in the in the act of fulfilling God's will. Uh, I leave it to everybody in their personal beliefs to decide uh, as to whether that is uh, this earth that we stand on or whether it is a place we look forward to inhabiting when our time as, as individual humans or as the human family comes to its necessary end. Hmm. Um, the phrase itself, though, was picked up in mystical literature in the Kabbalah um, and means something very, very different there. But before I go there, let me see if you want to ask me anything else about what I just said, because this goes in a completely different direction. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, okay. Only in this sense, because you leave me curious about the, the multidimensional quality of this concept so you so know here we go yeah because i'm thinking you know certainly there's the very tangible side of it very practical i mean as you suggested taking your neighbor a meal or maybe feeding uh 50, refugees certainly seems like it would fit nicely into this concept but then there's something greater transcending it which you're now hinting at or maybe explicitly said, is the command of God. So there seems to be like a heaven and earth connection here. 
and, there is, and, there is, is that where an earth connection, but, but I want you to buckle your safety belt because we are making a very sharp turn when oh. we get into mystical and Kabbalistic literature. Hmm. The notion of the creation of the world in, in Kabbalah, in, in Jewish mysticism, is uh, one that, at least in one iteration, posits that before the physical creation, God inhabited every every place in the universe. Um, and in order to make room for that which is not God, not hyphen God, God had to contract and make space for something that was other than God, other mm. than this unity. Um, in doing so, um, part of God shattered and became embedded in the physical world. Inside of every piece of physicality, there is a spark of God. And it is the task of the mystic to discover the task of God in these shards, as they're called, and to release those sparks so that they can be reunified with the Godhead. Mystical practice is the way one encounters the spark of God in every physical manifestation in the world. So there's there is a spark of God in a shard of pottery, to use the metaphor literally. There is a spark of God in, uh, in, in the trees of the forest, in the grass of the field, in the mountains, in, in, in every rock you would pick up off the ground. And of course, it I, I think probably goes without saying that there is a spark of God in every human being you encounter. So if you are living a life of, of devotion, of spiritual elevation, you will look for that spark uh, in everything you encounter, most especially the people you encounter, and try uh, to do tikkun olam, try to put this world back together in the unity of God. And you do so both by being a, a devout uh, observer of your tradition. This is Jewish mysticism, so we're talking about Judaism. Um, and you do it by sensitizing yourself to being able to discover what is the spark and what is the shell from which you have to liberate the spark. Uh, we are going around cracking open uh, physical uh, properties like they're walnuts, so that we can get to the meat inside, to the spark inside, and release mm -hmm. it into the world. That, for the mystic, is tikkun olam, mm -hmm. is creating wow. a world more holistically godly than it was before we put our hand to the task. Wow, that, that kind of resonates with uh, a, a latent Pentecostal charismatic Christian gene of mine <laughs> makes me want to say, "Wow, that gives me Holy Ghost goosebumps." But uh, and 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 that does connect to my question for you here. And I'm the annoying student in the back of the room, asking the rabbi. But what about non-Jews? What about Gentiles? Can they do this kind of work? Even the spiritual side of it that you just described that the uh, Kabbalists see? So I will say that, and I, look, I, I want to offer a disclaimer here. I am not a mystic and I'm not a scholar of mysticism, but I know, I know you're what a I very know, earthy right? guy. Yeah. 
I uh, so Jewish mysticism develops very much at the same time as Christian mysticism. So they are not without uh, influence of each other, even if it's not explicit. If you were a student of both, and I've been on a very amateur basis a student of both, you will find um, that, um, that there are parallels and overlaps. Same way, by the way, in, in uh, Islamic mysticism. Mm-hmm. All through Europe and Asia, this was happening at the same time. So, yes, it is, it is not only uh, possible, but it is expected that people of, of good faith, I'll, I'll use that literally, good mm-hmm. faith, um, are able to release these sparks into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact... Now, this is Jack Moley, and this is not anything that you'll find in a book anywhere. Um, if if I were to say that um, that the Trinity represents a a division of function of God, even if it's not a division of of existence of God, then the ability to live a life in which you can unify those three aspects of the Godhead is very much that tikkun olam that the mystics talk about uh, when you live a life of a Jewish mystic, is mm. to be able to bring all of that together into a unified whole. Mm. Now, well, that, I, that, the question I thought you were going to ask me was, do non-Jews have, have that spark inside of them? And the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Oh, I'm glad and, you, you posed the question. I assumed the answer, but... Uh, I'm glad that you're you're saying it clearly. It is, and you know, it is. It shouldn't be a surprise that having as fractious a relationship as they did with the church uh, during during uh, uh, the emergence of, of mysticism, which was in some ways an opportunity to escape from uh, from the misery of of life in Europe, particularly at, at that period of time, not just because of being Jewish, but because we're talking about which centuries are we're talking we about well, we're talking about the, the, the middle ages yeah mm-hmm. um so uh, and 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 beyond we'll get to that in a minute mm-hmm. um so it, it's uh it it is uh, sort of a, a dilemma for for jewish mystics thinking about christians in particular because there was on the one hand the philosophical notion that all of humanity is one family, and on the other hand, the notion that there is some measure of specialness, sometimes the word used is chosenness about the Jews, that make them different from Christians. And can one find a commonality between the two communities? That's that's a, a constant tension, rarely explicitly talked about because the fear of retribution, if you said the wrong thing from church authorities, was so severe at that point. So you sort of have to suss it out a little bit if you're looking at uh, at that question. Of course, Bonhoeffer would posit his own question, which would be, uh, when you talk about that severe reaction by Christians to Jews, are they really Christian? He He seems to give a clear answer to that one. But anyway, we won't get down that path. Uh, we'll stay right on, on, uh, on this one. Uh, so you're talking about with the mystics, yes. um, this whole concept, is there tension 
even within the Jewish world between that mystical view of tikkun olam and maybe the more earthy view of tikkun olam, or, well, or do we, they harmonize? We, we haven't gotten there yet, but there is indeed tension as mysticism emerges and grows between Jewish mysticism and Jewish rationalism. Mm. And it sort of comes to a head in the 17th, 18th century, when the um, 16th, 17th, 18th century, with the emergence of uh, what, what most people think of when they think of traditional Judaism, which is Hasidism. Uh, Hasidic Jews were the followers of a tradition that was begun by Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. His name means Israel, uh, the master of the good name, who, who took mysticism, which was very esoteric at the time, as popular as it was, and he used it as sort of an antidote to, the, uh, to what he perceived as the legalism of the rabbinic tradition, which was very strict and, and very severe and very demanding. And he used it to reintroduce joy into religious observance, rather than uh, a sort of puritanical severity. Now, I say 16th, 17th, 18th century, remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about the period shortly after the Inquisition. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the period of time that the, that the uh, pilgrims took off for the new world and, and that we were looking at uh, the puritanical influences in Christianity, in this country in particular. And so the, this notion of a severe observance of religion uh, was very, very common in the world at that point. And the Baal Shem Tov took the spirit of mysticism and introduced it into day-to-day uh, -day Jewish life. And it became very popular with the masses, extremely popular with the masses, because you didn't need a PhD to, uh, uh, to observe Jewish life if, if your primary concern was joy rather than uh, the legal um, obligations of, of Jewish law. And within that Hasidic tradition, the notion of tikkun, of improvement, uh, became a, uh, a necessary aspect of human life. Not just tikkun olam, but tikkun atzmo, the, the repair of yourself. The tikkun that you wanted to be in the world, the repair that you wanted to make in the world, had to begin internally. And so, if you had a if if you had a fault, if you had a uh, an appetite that you couldn't control, what you needed was a tikkun, or as they would say in in Yiddish, which was the lingua franca then, uh, a tikkun. Uh, I need a tikkun. I need to be fixed. Today we would go to a therapist, or we would go to uh, we would go to a clinic. There you went to the rabbi, the rabbi, and, and he would tell you how to affect the tikkun, how to fix yourself, and thereby fix your place in the world. And there are all sorts of Hasidic stories, which was the primary way of conveying uh, Jewish tradition in, in uh, Hasidism, all sorts of Jewish stories about people who make uh, a tikkun on themselves, and it makes the world a better place. The one that is, that is uh, probably most famous, well, not most famous, I'll tell you two quick ones. One is about the man who who gossips about his rabbi in a negative way, and he feels terrible about it, goes to the rabbi, he says, 
I, I want to apologize to you. I want you to forgive me. I've been gossiping about you. And the rabbi says, well, here's what you need to do and I'll forgive you. Go get a feather pillow and climb to the top of the tallest building in town, tear it open and shake the feathers out, then come back and see me. Mm-hmm. So so the guy said, okay, you're the rabbi. He goes up to the, to the tower, he shakes out the pillow, he comes back down and the rabbi says to him, now when you gather all the feathers, you will have earned my forgiveness because that's what your gossip did. Right. That was his his tikkun, right? And the other one that is famous is about it's it's the vision quest story, right? Uh, I I had a dream that there was a there was a a treasure buried and I'm I'm going out and he goes across the 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 plains and the rivers and the mountains and he winds up in the backyard of some guy he's never seen and he said, I'm here because I had a dream there was a treasure here. And the guy says, I don't know about any treasure, but I had a dream that there's this poor Jew who lives in Eastern Europe and in his backyard, and he describes the man's backyard, there's a pot of gold. And so the guy goes back across the mountains and the rivers and the plains and the and and goes in his backyard and digs it up and discovers that what he needed in order to live a good life was was right in his own home all the time. But he had to go through the process before he could find it. That's a very common story in lots of different traditions, but it's also a Hasidic story as well. And look, there are a hundred of them like that, in which the actor finds some way to improve himself and thereby improve his world and his perspective on the world. It's the hero's arc. It's it's the stuff of every good story. It's the hero's arc. Exactly. All right. So, all right. So that's yet another uh, way of understanding Tikkun Olam. So just to review, because I've been... Now, before you go through the review, though, I have to say, that's it, finally. I know what happened at your Seder table for me. <laughs> I got a, your Tikkun, huh? <laughs> I got a Tikkun at that time. I've, 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 I've grasped for how to describe what happened at that Seder table of yours, and that's it. Thank you. There you go. There you go. All right, so we've so we have this this notion of of fixing a world temporal or or physical. We have this notion of repairing a world that is shattered because God had to make room for the world by con, by self contraction. We have this notion of repairing your soul and thereby repairing the world around you, and that brings us to the early 1960s which is the first time that this phrase that you've introduced in its popular usage uh, is used in that form. Two things happen then that, that ought to give people a certain faith that ancient traditions are not beyond um, renewal and, and reimagination. Um, I grew up in the conservative movement, which is sort of the Episcopalians of Judaism, um, mm-hmm high liturgy, um, uh, liberal theology. And uh, I belong to no the- No blue blazers, right? Sorry? No blue blazers. No, no blue blazers, no. No, no blue blazers. Okay. No, I just want to be sure of that. Okay. <laughs> but um, I belong to the youth group, which is called United Synagogue Youth, USY. And uh, they had a program for collecting charitable funds, tzedakah in Hebrew, um, which they called uh, tikkun olam, uh, essentially a fund for repairing the world. All right, it was an invented usage of that phrase. 
And um, to this day, the charitable efforts of, of our youth arm in our denomination is called TL for Tikkun Olam. Hmm. Um, the other thing that happened at, at almost exactly the same time is that the reform movement, who are the liberals of, of uh, religious Judaism, began using this phrase in the context in which it is most popular now, which is as a synonym for social justice activism. Both of them borrowed this phrase from the liturgy without regard to its original intent. They borrowed it because of its sort of literal meaning, fixing the world. You know, it's what we all hope to do is to make the world a better place. And um, though, though kids in, in the conservative movement's youth group will still resonate with both meanings of tikkun olam in modern times, it's really the reform movement which, which earns the credit for making this a watchword of American progressive activism, um, American Jewish progressive activism. Tikkun olam is repairing the world. If you were to ask, I would guess, a um, hundred American Jews uh, what tikkun olam is, they would be able to give you an answer. They probably know it as well as they would know what Shabbat is or what some of the requirements of keeping kosher are or what the Jewish New Year is. It, it has become that axiomatic in what you know as an American Jew. But if you were to ask anyone who is not a transplanted reformed Jew in Israel, uh, where the majority of the world's Jew, or the, the plurality of the Jewish world's population lives right now, what tikkun olam is, they would probably make some reference to one of the historical meanings I gave you, if they mm. would know that at all. It mm. is, it's an American idiom uh, that has been exported and that I think really captures what the essence of social conscience is for American Jews. By the way, not just liberal American Jews, but I think you would find that 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 anybody who is uh, who has a sense of any kind of activism in the world would consider tikkun olam to be one of the basic uh, obligations of a Jewish member of civic society. Hmm. You know where I last saw it emblazoned was on the side of a refuse collection truck, a garbage truck. In my old neighborhood in D.C., these giant garbage trucks trundling through our neighborhood with tikkun olam on the side. And I Googled that and discovered that the owner of that company had devoted, you know, a good portion of his profits uh, to charitable works. And he wanted that's, to spread that. So that's, that's uniquely American. That, it certainly is. Uh, it certainly is. It, it is. Not and we both want to know who that guy is. is. <laughs> we both want to know who that guy is. Yeah. Well, I'll look it up when, when this is over. But uh, it it is not the most unusual place I've seen a, a Jewish value emblazoned. But mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. um, I I certainly get it. You know, I, if if you are a garbage collector, you really are doing tikkun olam in in almost yeah. every sense of the word. You're, yeah. you're getting the schmutz out of the world, and that's that's one way to make the world a better place. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, 
It, now, you know, I've written down as, as you've been instructing, and can't you tell folks why uh, I keep company with this guy? <laughs> uh, he's a wonderful teacher. And really, when I, I wasn't entirely uh, jesting when I said I'm getting the Holy Ghost goosebumps. I've literally been getting some goosebumps as you've been expounding on this for a lot of reasons, and especially this combination of a deeply spiritual and transcendent meaning uh, coupled with this very earthly and practical uh, execution of it. I, I love that. It, it, it makes it so full and, and profound. Uh, it, you know, we're looking now, I think, I think I know you well enough uh, to say that you would agree with me that a lot of damage has been done in the world of late, uh, fairly recently. Uh, yeah. Hint, hint, here in the United States, <laughs> last four to four and a half years, five years, a lot of damage has been done. And it's not restricted to the United States. Certainly, we see similar injury around the world. In light, in, in view of that, is there a way to apply tikkun olam as, as a, a way of being, of doing, of acting in this damaged period of time? So I'd, I'd like to think so. You know, there's, there's an old Jewish joke about the, uh, the, uh, the people of the town get together to try to address poverty and in, their, in their midst. And they come to the town elders and they say, we've come up with a plan. The rich people are going to give their money to the poor people. And the city fathers say to them, well, that sounds like a great plan, but how's, how are you going to implement it? They say, well, we're halfway there. The poor people have agreed to accept it. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, if, That's beautiful. If, if you view tikkun olam as, as sort of a, um, as sort of a, a what do I, I, I hate to use this word because it's so loaded, but as, as an activity by people with privilege, if, mm. if I'm going to be paternalistic and I'm going to say, here's what needs to be done to fix the world, and therefore you're going to, you're going to follow my lead or you're going to, you're going to do what I, what I start, you're, you're not getting the deeper layers of what this tikkun is. Because when you encounter, when you encounter people, when you encounter things, that that are in need of the tikkun, it requires first that you see that spark inside that needs to be released in order to make the moment godly. Um, I know from from your work that uh, that sensible approaches to firearms is is central to your work. Right, you're not going to persuade people who are gun owners and who use them let's even say for for legitimate and maybe even sometimes admirable purposes hunting to feed their family you're not going to persuade them that it's tikkun olam to take their guns away or to restrict their guns but if you can see inside of them the spark of the divine that allows you to have that common purpose of reverence for life 
and, and of respect for each other, then you have the possibility of tikkun olam. Now, will that lead you eventually to, uh, to beating swords into, into plowshares? Uh, look, that's the aspiration that's in, in the prophets, right? But it's not where you start. You don't come into someone and say, I need a new plowshare. Give me your sword. Hmm. Um, and, and so, yes, the, the notion of tikkun olam is fixing the world is only effective if in the process you understand that what you're trying to do is to release that spark of the divine that the mystics posited that are inside the people you're dealing with. If you don't see the godliness inside of them, you, you're, you're doomed because th they'll pick up on it right away and they won't recognize the godliness in you. <laughs> One of my mentors, the inimitable Harold Bradison, a reformed uh, minister from California, uh, now may rest in peace, but um, he used to say, everyone has a little bit of good and a little bit of bad in them. Sometimes the little good is so little, it's very, very hard to see. But yeah. it's, there. it's there. And I know there's a whole nother discussion uh, we could have about uh, the destruction of the soul and all of that, but by and large, there's something good. Uh, and uh, if you don't believe it, watch that documentary on Mr. Rogers. That's right. That's exactly he has right. a lot to say about that. Uh, but so maybe in, in the few minutes we have left uh, here, Rabbi, uh, can you give us some practical advice. Uh, I hope it I hope it doesn't involve taking a pillow up a tower, but <laughs> uh, something maybe each of us can do, uh, you know, in the smallness of our own world, maybe uh, in a very big way uh, with the whole world. Can you give us some practical advice? What what can a person do in this time to repair a broken world? So the best advice I can give, of course, comes from, from the tradition. In, uh, in the Talmud, which interestingly enough sort of fits in this space between the first iteration of tikkun olam uh, in, in early liturgy and the later iteration of tikkun olam in, in mystical literature, in the Talmud is is the uh, teaching, lo alecha hamlacha ligmor, the uh, the matter is not yours to complete, v'lo ata ben chorin lehibatel mimah, but neither are you free to desist from it. There's always something to be done, um, and you're never going to be able to finish it. But you don't have the liberty to say because I can't fix things. I shouldn't try. That is what uh, that is what the instruction of the Holy One is to all of us. Um, that teaching, by the way, goes on to say, uh, uh, goes on to say, um, uh, I'm, I'm pausing here because I'm sort of translating as I go along. Hayom katsar, the day is short. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. 
the workers are lazy, but the reward is great. Uval And the master of the house urges you on. Mm-hmm. So there is so much to be done, Reverend Shank, as you know. And it is overwhelming to the point where it is tempting to say, I will take advantage of this pandemic and shut myself up in the house and not worry about anybody else because all I need to do is take care of myself. I, I can't finish what needs to be done out there, but I can't absent myself from the effort because if I do, then all is lost. And because there are so many people out there who are indeed lazy, even though they know the reward for, for engagement is great. We don't have a lot of time. It's not just the, the day that's short, it's the life that's short. But we have been urged by someone greater than us to do the work that needs to be done to put this world back together, to repair it in a way that makes it a benefit, not just for us individually, but for all the people who are our neighbors and beyond. Mm-hmm. How's that? I haven't given a sermon in a long time, so this was a great yeah, opportunity. Yeah, well, <laughs> as, we, as we say in my tradition, that'll preach, that'll brother. Preach. That'll yes, preach. <laughs> and, and it does, and it preaches well. And uh, thank you for that beautiful treatment of this very meaningful phrase. Uh, and I hope it becomes more than that for any of us. Uh, it, it, it deserves much greater attention uh, than simply as a bumper sticker slogan. Uh, it, you know, as you, were, uh, as you were talking just these last couple of minutes, it was drawing the picture for me of a kind of relay race mm-hmm. where it's really not yours to finish general, I mean, for, for one, it is, uh, but for most, it's not. Right. You're simply there to do your stretch successfully, pick it up and hand it off and, and do it successfully, uh, which makes it much more manageable to consider because, you know, when you, when you approach it as if it is your responsibility to complete the whole thing, that's overwhelming. That's intimidating. Uh, but it seems Tikkun Olam gives us a very manageable way to treat this otherwise very uh, difficult challenge. Uh, and and not, to be, not to be disappointed if we can't do the whole fix. If we have a lot of partners in this, it'll get done. Hmm. I'll say this. These kinds of conversations you're having are really important. And the people who listen to them on a regular basis, I think, are are that much the better for it because it's not enough just to know things. You have to know backgrounds. You have to know the layers we've been talking about in order to give meaning to the things that you're doing and not just success. Success and meaning are not the same thing. Um, But look, take a look at the two of us. We started life pretty much at the same time. I'm older than you are, young man. But yes, we, we you. started pretty much the same way, in pretty much the same circumstances, sort of middle-class Jewish existences, and we took paths that were very, very different in mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. And here we are, um, after all of that effort, working towards the same things again. And 
that's that's what life is. We take these various journeys, and uh, though we take different roads, we wind up if we're if we're paying attention, and we're engaged in tikkun olam, we wind up fixing ourselves in the world around us. Well, I'm sure glad that my long and winding road uh, <laughs> took a turn in front of your door in. <laughs> Northern Virginia, because uh, I'm certainly the better for it, and running this relay with you and doing my little portion of repair uh, has been very important. And you just gave it far greater meaning, and I'm sure you did for every person listening in. Folks who have joined us, you'll find a lot of information in the text surrounding this podcast, including some links. Uh, and in there will be a link uh, to find Rabbi Moline uh, so you can hear more uh, about all of the good work he's doing to help. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll plug my personal website too, jackmoline.com. If you want uh, more of my ramblings, you'll find a lot of them there. No, that's where you find the sermons. I know that. <laughs> uh, and we need those. So, uh I'm a reader. Hope you will be a reader of Jack Moline. Hope you'll check out Interfaith Alliance. Uh, and I hope it won't be the last time you hear the rabbi's voice on this podcast. So stay forward, if you will. Jack, thank you. Now you're Jack. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Rob. Always good to be here. Oh, I'm enriched for it. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs>